I want the experience of the employee to be joyful. And I've actually said to people, have we earned you today? And they look at me and they're like, huh? And I'm like, listen, your commitment is directly tied to our ability to earn your commitment. And that is based on the experiences that you have every day. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. The way we work has changed forever, and highly skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top talent to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. For this episode, we have a special guest host, Michelle Labby, TopTal's Chief People Officer. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm Michelle Labby. I'm the Chief People Officer at TopTel, and I'd like to introduce you to Eric Hutcherson, Chief People and Inclusion Officer for Universal Music Group. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You have a very interesting background and story of how you made it to where you are today, and I'd love you to share with everybody what that looks like. Yes. You know, I've taken a bit of a circuitous route to the seat that I sit in, but I'm really fortunate because I've had lots of opportunities along the way. So, I'll take you all the way back, right? So undergrad in political science at NYU and political science was even sort of falling into something. I swore I was going to be an investment banker and then I realized I couldn't do math. So that was the end of that. And then, you know, I had my heart set on being an attorney and I, and, and I loved the world of politics. And and then I stumbled upon the notion of political science and really sort of understanding how systems work. And I really enjoyed that while I was at NYU. And then I got my master's degree in sports management at UMass Amherst. I thought I was going to be a professional athlete. I had an opportunity to play basketball overseas, but I also got accepted into the UMass master's program, which rarely ever had accepted undergrad straight out of school into the master's program. And they only took 30 students at a time. So in 1990, I decided to join the UMass cohort. And I got my master's in sports management, which is essentially an MBA with sports examples. So when I finished at UMass, my first job out of school was with the Boston Celtics. It was a great opportunity for me to learn. I was in public relations. I was doing community relations. I was doing player appearances, player ball signings. But really, the essence of what I was doing there was helping players to connect in the community in our stay in school program having professional athletes go out to schools to talk to young people about the importance of education and preparation and how that's going to help you in your long-term career. So when I left the Celtics, I was there from 91 to 94 and I left the Celtics and I went to Foot Locker and I was working in sports marketing and I was doing footwear marketing for a new brand called In The Zone. And In The Zone was basically a footwear brand that had been started by Foot Locker, signed by a guy named Bobby Hurley, who I played AAU basketball with. Bobby was a superstar at Duke became the number seven pick in the NBA draft, played for the Sacramento Kings. In his rookie year, he was in an almost fatal car accident. Long story short, it ended his career. So when his career ended, so did the footwear brand. And I was thinking about what to do next. And it's interesting because I got offered HR jobs at Foot Locker. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not an HR guy. I don't know what that is. I'm a sports marketing guy. So I'm going to stay in sports. So I went on to be a sports agent and I represented players and I did footwear deals and I did marketing deals and I represented a lot of guys that did really well in the league. And when I left the agent business, 
I had gotten married, I landed in Boston, and I started working for a company called Inroads. And Inroads basically is a diversity organization, nonprofit, that helps young people of color make their way into corporate America through internships. And so I was placing interns at a bunch of different places, and five out of the 10 companies that I was placing interns with offered me college recruiting jobs. So I'm like, this HR thing must be a calling. So I dove into it. I ended up at Lotus Development Corporation. And then from Lotus, I went to Putnam Investments, which began my Martian McLennan career. So I did five years at Putnam. I did eight and a half years at Mercer, the human resources consulting firm. And then I did four years at Marsh, the insurance brokerage firm. And then I did just under a year at Marsh and McLennan, the parent company. So I spent 18 years at MMC, learned a lot. And then the opportunity at the MBA came. Through a series of networking conversations, I made my way to the MBA and I spent six years at the MBA, which were six fantastic years. I was, say, was that like a dream job? It was a dream job in the sense that it was the platform that I had grown up with. It was the sport that I had grown up playing and it was the opportunity for me to give back to the game that I couldn't play anymore. And it was also my return to sports. Like, think about it. I started my career in sports at the Celtics in 1991. And I ended up back in the sports world in 2014. So that's a long time away from the game to then come back to the game. And then most recently, I've just joined Universal Music in the last three months. Now, sometimes people go, so your career, that's sort of weird, like sports, nonprofit, investments, consulting. If you start all the way back to the days of me being at the Celtics, and work all the way up to me being at Universal, the common theme was I was always trying to figure out the best way to help people maximize their personal and professional lives. And that's really how I've defined my career so far. That's amazing. Yes, I was also a political science major thinking I was going to be a lawyer. And I went to a Pac-10 school that had a great basketball team. I went to University of Arizona. Nice, nice. days of Lute Olson. With, yeah. a lot of those, with Steve Kerr and a lot of Steve those. Kerr? So, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in the basketball arena, at least. Uh-huh, um, so good, I'm a Lakers fan. So, um, That's all right. That's all right. I was a fan of game seven. So well, now you're I, in L.A., so we might have to. Convert. I'm in L.A. I might need to convert. Although okay. I see there's a lot of Clipper fans at Universal. So I've got to figure out, am I a Laker fan or a Clipper fan? We'll see. Now you've been in an HR job for the last, what, yeah. seven years? Many, right? many, many, many years. Right. But now what you've officially called an HR, although I don't love that term anymore. I feel like it was yeah. personal and then it was human resources and now it's people, talent, yeah. culture. Yeah. How have you seen that evolve? Well, you know what's interesting? So I started my real HR career, I would say probably 1996. Okay. So I left... Inroads, and I went to Lotus Development Corporation and I became a college recruiter. And that was really my first time being in HR. So 1996. And then from 96 until now, I've been recruiter, I've been in the talent space, I've been a stand up trainer, I've been a business partner, I've led teams, I've been the head of diversity, I've done a lot of different things in that time that's rounded out my career. And I got my first you know, sort of chief people officer role, if you will, at Mercer. So I was the head of North America at Mercer and I had a whole bunch of, you know, people in operations reporting to me. And the evolutions that I've seen over that time are a few. 
probably the biggest of which is this notion of the name change. So when I joined Universal, I said, one, my title will be Chief People and Inclusion Officer, not Chief HR Officer. And two, that's a signal that I'm going to change the name. We're going to be People, Inclusion, and Culture. We're not going to be Human Resources. So I think the one major change that's happened is over the evolution of personnel to human resources to people, we've become a different function. We've become more at the center of the business. We've become more about information versus relationship. We've become more about providing service, not being servants. The speed of our execution is not our calling card. It's the quality of our execution and the value of our insights as opposed to how quickly you responded to me and did you do everything I asked of you? Because I remember the order taker days. And so now I tell people I'm in the problem avoidance business, not the problem solving business. I know how to solve problems, but what I really am good at is I'll keep you out of trouble before you even know you're headed for trouble. And that's really what we are responsible to do is to see around the corner before other people can see it. The other thing that I think is a major evolution that I've started speaking about a lot is that the employee is now at the center. It used to be that the value proposition in any organization was that the company was the was at the center. It was the prestige of the company. It was how much we paid you. It was what we called you. It was how much money the company made. It was what industry it was in and all those different things that made the prestige of being at a particular organization. Now, I think the value proposition has changed. It's about the values of the company. It's about what people stand for, what you stand for, don't stand for, what you speak on, don't speak on, what you do, don't do. And talent comes to an organization now based on those things more than they do based on the prestige of the company. And so with the employees sitting at the center of that conversation now, I believe that organizations have to earn the commitment of those employees in a different way than they've ever had to before. I remember when I worked at the Celtics, it was your privilege to work for them. There was a long line of people who wanted to work there. And if you didn't want to work there, so be it. There's another person ready to take your seat. And that was actually the case for many, many, many big brands. Like if you think Nike, if you think Apple, if you think Google, if you think all those big companies, like... There was a point in time where the prestige of working for those companies far outweighed however they treated you and whatever they did to you and whatever they paid you. Yeah, yeah. they wanted that name on the resume. or hundred percent. Like there was a point in time where that shift began to happen. And I think it was this last generation when they said, you know, I've got skills. I've got capabilities and I'm actually pretty awesome. And I could work for you or I could work for them. And if I don't want to work for anybody, I could actually start my own company if I want to. And that was a fundamental change. All of a sudden, organizations were like, wow, we're in a war for this talent and this talent can go anywhere. And it's not just the prestige in the name of our company. I've actually got to earn this person's commitment every day. And I think that was the shift that you started to see organizations put values at the center. You saw organizations start to put their public stance and what their community stance was at the forefront of their value proposition. You started to see diversity and inclusion and belonging as at the center of the value proposition. And the things that started to fall into the background were like prestige and name of company and size of organization and all those other things. Those became somewhat table stakes. But more importantly, it was, how are you going to treat me? How are you going to motivate me? What are the things that I'm going to be able to contribute? And what kind of a global citizen are you as a company? And I think that is a significant change that is here to stay. It's people first now. No doubt. We don't use the word employee. I use tons of phrases when, you know, I'm a former coach, former player, so I can't help myself, right? And I'll say to people, trust, trust your teammates. 
you have to know my personal contribution can only go but so far. And I'm only going to be as good as the teammate that I'm willing to pass the ball to and let them take it and run for a while. So I think we all understand that team members and our ability to be a camaraderie organization that brings everybody together is going to be the difference between success and failure in the long run. We talk a lot about values here, right? And the value proposition. How are you showing your employees, team members, whether it was NBA or here, how important they are, how they fit in the organization, that, that there's a true environment that's yeah. value-driven and there's yeah. a value proposition here? I'll take you away from the NBA and take you to Universal in the last couple of months, but just know that at the NBA, I had a six-year head start on what I'm doing here yeah. at Universal, but essentially the same. Number one, well-being. I believe that well-being is the most important thing that we can do. And when I think well-being, I know most people think physical well-being, financial well-being, emotional well-being. I would add to that what I call experiential well-being. And what I mean by experiential well-being is just think about in the physical world and even in the virtual world, every time we have an interaction with a teammate. If it's a positive interaction, what it does for our psyche, what it does for our productivity, what it does for our energy. And when we have a negative interaction with a teammate, what it does to our psyche and what it does to our stomach and what it makes, how it makes us feel. And there's a physical reaction that goes with those negative interactions that then is a productivity hit that then is a financial hit on the company. So I haven't yet put a number on it, but I've started working with Qualtrics and some other companies to say, what if we can actually put a number on the impact that a negative experiential well-being could have on an organization? I've started really focusing on, I want the experience of the employee to be joyful. And I've actually said to people, have we earned you today? And they look at me and they're like, huh? And I'm like, listen, your commitment is directly tied to our ability to earn your commitment. And that is based on the experiences that you have every day. And so when you walk into the building and when you walk out of the building, I want you to be joyful. I want you to be saying, I cannot wait to get there. I can't wait for the challenge that's going to come. I know I'm equipped to handle that challenge and I can't wait to do it with these teammates. Now, if I can get 10,000 people to all be going in that direction at the same time, we're going to be an incredible organization. And the only way to do that is that I have to make it so that every employee makes sure that their priority is to make you feel comfortable, to make you feel good, not make me feel good. Think about it. When it comes to diversity and inclusion, what happens? Most people are thinking, how do I construct the environment so that I can feel more comfortable? Instead of saying, how can I construct the environment so that the people around me feel more comfortable? And just that small shift is what I mean when I say experiential well-being. If I spent my time making sure you, Michelle, when you showed up at work every day, that you felt good about the environment and reciprocally you did the same for me, not only would we both get lift, but we both would have a really good feeling stomach. Don't you have four questions? Did I hear something that you asked? I do. I do. So there's, so I have this notion of who deserves to have your greatness because in my mind, everybody has greatness in them, but not everybody deserves to actually have your greatness. And I've seen so many people join an organization for the prestige. Like think about the old value proposition. They join the organization for the prestige and for the money and all those other things. And they don't get treated well. And then they wonder why I don't enjoy getting up to go to work every day. And they wonder why I don't enjoy having this experience every day. And even though I get this really big, nice paycheck, I still, my stomach hurts and I'm out a lot and I don't feel well. And I'm barking at my family when I get home and all those other things. So I said, listen, here's the thing. Answer yourself four questions. Am I proud of the company I work for? 
Am I proud of the people I work with? Am I proud of the work that I get to do? And am I pleased with the value that I give and get? Am I proud of the company I work for? Are you proud to have the name Top Towel on your shirt? And when people ask you where you work, do you say, I work for Top Towel? Or do you say, I work for Top Towel. It's a great organization. Let me tell you about it. When I say I work at Universal, people go, ooh, Universal, wow. Right. And that's what you want. You want to feel proud that you work for the company. And that's about what the company stands for and what its values are and how it treats people and so on. Am I proud of the people I work with? We just talked about it. Your teammates. If you don't feel good about your teammates, if you don't respect your teammates, if you don't feel like your teammates have your back, it's not a fun place to be. But when you do and when you feel like these are my people, like the people around me, these are my people and I would give of myself for the greater whole, even if it didn't mean something for me personally, that's when you've hit it. And when you have 10,000 people in the universal context all moving in the same direction, trying to give to someone else in their team and asking their teammates, how can I be helpful to you? And what can I do to be supportive of you? You've got a different environment, deserves to have your greatness. I'm proud of the work that I get to do. We have to go to work every day doing something more than just clocking in and clocking out. We go to work because we want to do something that's a higher order purpose, something that we believe is for the greater good, something that we believe we're giving back to the world. And when you get to that place where your personal passion and your professional pursuit are together, you are in a different place. It is a different feeling when you go to work every day. You asked me if the NBA was my dream job. It was one of them because when you showed up every day, it was like, this is what I'm passionate about. This is who I am. And I get to go to work every day and do this. The same thing for music. I grew up in a musical family. So for me to be now in music and to know that music brings people so many memories and brings back joy of so many times. Like I tell people all the time, you two Joshua tree, that album puts me right back in soccer, in high school, in Scotland, playing with my teammates. If I hear any song from that album, that's where I am. That's what the power of music is. So you want to be able to do something in your work. That's of a higher order purpose than just showing up every day and clocking in and clocking out. And then finally, Am I pleased with the value that I give and get? Do these people actually care about me or am I here? You know, the notion of employee, personnel, employee, human resources, right? Am I here just for, to give you services? And then when, I'm, when you've extracted all the services out of me that you can get, you throw me by the wayside and you go get the next one. Or am I here to be part of your team and part of your people and part of your family? And I have belonging as part of this organization. So just think about those four questions, because if the answer to those four questions are no, if any one of the answers to the f- those four questions are no, then they probably don't deserve to have your greatness. And when you find that the answers to those four questions are yes, you probably are in a place that you should re-up over and over and over again, because it's a great environment and it's a really difficult opportunity to see that all four of those things line up perfectly. But when you find it, it's paradise. I love that. I love that. You want to have this person who feels so connected and goes to work happy every day and wakes up. Yes, we all have challenges, but excited. So how do you hire to make sure that you're getting the right person or people, since I'm sure you're doing a lot of interviewing? No doubt. Fitting into those four questions of what you're looking for for talent. Well, you know, it's funny when I interview people, they're a little thrown because I don't do the traditional serve and volley interview. Like I ask, tell me about a time. You tell me about a time. I ask you to give me an experience. You give me an experience. I ask you to teach me interviewing 101 training from way back. I ask, who are you? 
What do you do? What makes you different from everybody else? And why should anybody care? Who are you? Tell me who you are. Tell me what you're all about. What do you do? Tell me what you're good at and why you're good at it and why it would be applicable. What makes you different from everybody else? What makes you unique? When is the last time you introduced yourself to you? Like, how well do you know yourself? Do you know how many people that you can say, hey, so tell me about yourself and they can't say anything or they stumble or they don't remember. When is the last time you actually sat down and said, what makes me great? And then just write and then just complete the process of understanding what makes you unique and different. And then why would anybody care? What's the value to me? And what's the value to the organization? And what can you bring in order to be different? So I ask people that. And then I ask people, what gives you pause? Of all the things that you've considered about coming to our organization, what is it that gives you pause? What makes you wonder whether or not this is the right place for me? Because as much as I'm sitting here assessing whether or not you should work for us, you wouldn't be talking to me if you didn't have the skill set. So I'm not assessing whether you've got the skills to do the job. I'm assessing whether or not you're going to flourish here. And I'm assessing whether or not we're going to be able to be teammates together. So I want to know what gives you pause? What gives you concern? What holds you back? And then the last thing that I would ask people is, what's your motivation and what's your aspiration, right? So I ask you, what's your motivation? What motivates you? Is it money? Is it opportunity? Is it growth? Is it prestige? Is it exposure? What's your aspiration? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What are you looking for? How can I help you achieve the goal that you ultimately want to achieve? Because I might be a means to an end. And I totally understand that. And I'm very comfortable with that. If that's what we agree that is the the relationship we're going to have. But you might think that you want to tell me that you want to be here for 20 years because you think that that's what I want to hear. And I might be thinking, ooh, I don't think this is a 20-year job. I don't even think this is a 20-year career. So I'm not really sure this is the right place for you. So I hope that people will tell me what their aspirations are genuinely so that I can help you achieve your aspiration because I'm interviewing you to see whether or not I can be helpful to you in your career. So my interview style is very different because I'm in it for you. I've already got a job. I'm not here looking for one. I'm trying to see if this is the perfect place for you. And I want you to achieve that greatness. Like I'm in it for everybody to achieve greatness because once I've seen greatness happen and once I've seen people achieve their personal and professional goals, it's very difficult to see somebody walk into an operation that isn't going to achieve that for them. So when I'm interviewing, I'm actually trying to assess how can I help you achieve that ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve? And if I don't think I can, then I'll tell you that. And if I think I can be helpful to you, then I'll also tell you that. I think that's a great approach. I find that I'm more of a transparent, like, here's the good here's the bad, here's what's going to be challenging. I don't want you to come in and say, Michelle told me a completely different story during the interview process. This is not what I signed up for because it's hurting you. It's hurting me. I have to replace you. Morale takes a hit. So, you know, you definitely want to make sure that it's right on both ends. I call that the OS stage. The S is like bleeped out, but just think about it. Every time you join a new organization, every time you take on a new role, there's that point in time where you go, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Right. You'll come back to me if, if, I, if you say, you know, you kind of made it sound a little more rosy than it was when we got here. And I used to say to people at the NBA, we're in a race against the clock to make the inside look like the outside. Because outside, you know, so we, we both work at very prestigious organizations. Outside, everybody's like, I want to get in because I've heard that it's amazing and I wonder what it's like. As people professionals, we have to make sure that the inside reality is actually the same as the outside commercial. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you 
deciding to change careers from the MBA to Universal in the middle of a pandemic. I think you've moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. Have you even been into the office? We went all in. So I wouldn't exactly recommend that everybody pick up their career, their family, their home and move across country in the middle of a in the middle of a health crisis, in the middle of a political crisis, in the middle of a racial crisis to go in to only interview with one person in person for your entire process to only have been in the office for 15 minutes to pick up my laptop and to have only met maybe one or two of my own HR team in the three months that I've worked here. There's a bunch of silver linings that went with it. So I'll talk about those, but I made this move for a different reason. I mentioned financial crisis, racial crisis, political crisis, all happening at the same time. And I don't mean to offend when I say this, but it was sort of my 9-11 moment. And if you go back and you remember 9-11, there was a point in time where many, many, many people in society decided I'm going to put down whatever it is that I'm doing. And I'm going to go do something for a different purpose and for good. Because at 9-11, it changed the world. And I believe that this confluence of political health and racial crisis is that next pivot moment in the world. And so at that point in time, even though I was at the NBA and I was doing really well and things were going great, the platform of the NBA, as big as it is, pales in comparison to the platform of music. And most people don't realize this. I use the term music is universal, and I understand the pun of universal music. But just think about it. There are a lot of people in the world who love sports, but not everybody in the world watches or plays sports. I can't think of a single person in the world that doesn't listen to some form of music and that music hasn't touched their lives in some way and that the platform of music doesn't touch them in some way. I go back to my soccer example. There are certain pieces of music that when I listen to them, they put me right back where I was at a point in time. And for many, many people, they either bring back memories or they bring back experiences or whatever else. So I saw the platform of music as an opportunity to change the world at an even different level than I could in sports. And with the crises that were happening, the pandemic the way it was, the opportunity to move into music and to have that platform to be able to change the world from the seat I sit in, it was a no-brainer that it was time for me to make a change. Now, the mechanics of picking up and moving to the West Coast and the fact that I was not going to be able to engage people in person, I've used that to my advantage. So in three months, I've been to China, I've been to Japan, I've been to the UK, I've been all around Europe, I've been to Latin America, I've been to California, I've been to New York, and I've never left my house. Because Zoom is the silver lining. We've proved to ourselves that I can actually be a global organization virtually, and I can give people flexibility, and I can give people the opportunity to be balanced in their work and their life. And never, it's, re- it's never really balanced, but to have that integration and to have, like I say, work infiltrated life, not the other way around. This pandemic infiltrated our lives and work came home and home was that sacred place and work came home. So now, hey, I do work, I do family, I'm 150% on both. And at times it's all work and at times it's all family. And what we came to realize is the pandemic actually put us in a position where we had to appreciate the joys of all of those things and give people a little bit of more perspective than maybe they had before. So yeah, it was a risky move to make, 
but it was one that was pretty calculated and understood. And in the meantime, I've joined an incredible organization with an unbelievable leadership, with the opportunity and platform to really be able to make change. And I'm just so proud of the things that we've already done, the things that we have yet to do. And I'm watching, I'm watching the world change. I'm watching the world finally pay attention. And I'm hopeful that it sustains itself. You know, we've seen people sort of pay attention for a little while because it was in the forefront and then it kind of settles back into the norm again. And I'm hoping that this time it's different. I imagine you have a very large team and you've traveled virtually all over the place. I'll tell you, I'm not sure if you know, TopTel, we're 10 years old and 100% remote. We've been mm. remote since day one. Yeah. yeah. And we've never had enough. Congratulations. So what's interesting is, yes, work life has, has shifted because a lot of people's kids are home when they weren't supposed to be home, mm. right? So there's yeah. a shift that we had to make, but we've spent 10 years perfecting this onboarding, recruiting, training virtually 100%. Yeah. You know, we should learn from you. Yeah, there's a lot of companies that are having to shift, right? Because yeah. there's a lot of companies still in this day and age that believe in FaceTime is everything. Yeah, Every time yeah. you walk in, they're looking at you. How, how long of a lunch did that person take yeah, yeah. versus the trust factor? So yeah, how have so, you kind so of onboarded and, and really got to know your team? It's through frequency. As many interactions as you can possibly have, we over-communicate as best we can. And I use Zoom to my advantage, Zoom, Teams, whatever, FaceTime, whatever you want to use. You have to use them to your advantage. And quite frankly, you are correct. We need to learn from organizations like yours, right? So you guys have been doing this for 10 years. You've always been virtual. We need to learn. How do you recruit virtually? Because it's very different. And we need to learn, how do you onboard virtually? Because to give somebody a warm experience of joining a new organization when you're not going to meet anybody, when you're not going to go physically into a space and you're not going to, and we're going to get back to that at some point, but it's going to be some time. And even when we do, we've just opened up a new channel of talent that's available to us because we don't have to have that. So I don't want to go back to the way it was. I don't want to go back to the way it was because now I've got talent that I can tap into I've got people who can connect with each other in ways that we never did before. We can become a global organization much faster than we ever would have in the, in the past. I can now engage team members from all around the world very quickly. I no longer feel like I have to get on a plane to go do that two-hour meeting in London, and then I have to wrap an entire week around it to justify the two hours. Like, I don't have to do that anymore. And yes, do I miss the personal interaction? Of course I do. Do I like the notion of coming into an office and having a space and being able to interact with people live? I definitely do. I love the balance of those two, but I think the balance needs to shift a little bit more to virtuality than it did in the past. So you all don't have any plans to go back to how it was before? Well, we have plans to go back to our offices, but we certainly won't be returning the way it was. We will give people choice. We will go back in phases health and safety will always be at the center. How are you finding that you and your team or the team members all at Universal are handling the, you know, juggling of their work and their life? And yeah. And how are you all it, supporting them in that, I would ask? It, it's, it's challenging because I think people have grown up in these industries, many industries, ours being one, where things have been the norm for such a long period of time. It's very difficult to make those pivots. I can see the stresses on people to some degree. We thought this thing was going to last a couple of weeks. We thought maybe this thing was going to last a couple of months. We're now wondering if this thing is going to be forever. Is this just a new way of life? 
So in that respect, you can see some of the stresses that are coming over people. We spent a lot of time on well-being. People weren't taking vacations because they couldn't go away and they were already at home. And so what's the sense of doing a staycation? So maybe I'll just go to work every day. So a couple of the things we did, we closed the offices. And when I joined, we made the decision as a leadership team that the day before Election Day, the day before Thanksgiving, and we give a gift week at at the holidays where we give everybody a week off. We made it two. And we just said, we just need you to unplug because you're clearly not taking the vacations that I want you to. You're clearly not taking the time yourself. So we're just going to close the office to give everybody an opportunity to maybe recharge the battery and kind of get themselves back to being at your best. Because go back to my premise of well-being. I don't think you can be at your best if you're not healthy and rested and ready to go. And so periodically, you've got to take a step back. And maybe if you haven't taken the step back because you're running and you can't see that you need to take that step back, maybe I'll just close down the office and give you the opportunity to do it. So we did that. Second, it's just all about messaging. We're constantly reinforcing the importance of well-being and taking care of yourselves. And we've extended no co-pays for corona testing and other treatments. You know, we've done a number of things organizationally to just try to reinforce this notion that we care about you. And it goes back to that premise that the employee is at the center. We care about you. And if we care about you, we're going to do the things that we need to do in order not only to reinforce that we care about you, but to give you the opportunities to be safe and to be healthy and to feel good. One of the things we did recently is we gave everybody the Calm app. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've piloted the Calm app. We've also I've also used Headspace. Yeah. So at the NBA, we had headspace and we gave it to our players and we gave it to our staff. And then here at Universal, we've used Calm and we've used others. And 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 for sure, I think any and all mechanisms to give people a sense of center is helpful. And I think we need to continue to do that. So, I mean, I know you've had this great career. Rise has been really amazing. And it sounds like you joined Universal and even at the NBA is we as chief people officers or formerly Mm -hmm. chief HR Mm -hmm. officers, whatever we used to be called, we're not always had a seat at the table. How have you seen, you know, I think you're kind of, you and I would agree, you know, unless we're right there next to the CEO, we don't want to work at that type of company. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm on stage, sometimes I will be provocative and say I'm the second most powerful person in the building. And I'm saying that in particular when I'm talking to other people, professionals, because I think we give up our power seat sometimes. You know, I remember when having a seat at the table was like the ultimate goal. Right. But I think today we don't realize how much power we actually have. So if you put aside the notion that that, that relationships are power and you lean into the notion that information is power, who's got more information than we do? We've got access to all the people data. We've got access to all the demographic data. We've got access to all the performance data. We've got access to the talent data. We've got access to the comp data. We've got access to financial data. We've got access to all the data in the organization. And if we could put it together and create insights, we can actually be the person that gets the organization to move to action. There is no person other than the CEO that has more power than we do. We relinquish our power because we sometimes don't lean in in the places where we should. From a people perspective, If you put the employee at the center, who has more control over the employee experience than we do? Who can affect the outcome of employee engagement more than we can? 
Who can influence leaders to make their behavior be commensurate with the values that we have as an organization more than we can? Who has the voice in the face of the brand externally more than we do? Nobody. Nobody. When people ask me what I do, I say I'm responsible for people and culture. I'm responsible for the people who work here and the culture in which they live. And everything else is just administrative. Because in reality, you decide if you want to join a company based on the organization. You decide if you want to stay at a company based on the way they treat you. And you decide if you respect that company based on the way that they say goodbye to you. And everything that's in between is our responsibility. And what I'll say to my team is, if you only know HR stuff, they'll only call you when they think they have an HR problem. That's like 10% of the time. Yep. If you understand the business and you see yourself as a business partner to them, they will call you when they have a business issue. That's the other 90% of the time. And given the fact that we are responsible for everything that touches people and everything in our organization touches people in some way or another, I'm responsible for everything. And so in that respect, I'm the second most powerful person in the building. Now, I don't carry that on my sleeve. Right. What it's meant to be is empowerment to the people side of the equation to step in and take your power. Step in and take the seat that you deserve to have. Don't just be happy to be invited to the table. Participate and don't apologize for adding value. Participate, push, be active, be contrarian, drive, put people out of their comfort zone, get people comfortable being uncomfortable. Now, it's a difficult position to be in because that has nothing to do with popularity and it has nothing to do with being liked. And I know sometimes HR people come into this business because I like people. And I've said to people many times, if you like people, you probably shouldn't be in HR. Yeah. <laughs> we have to do the hard stuff. We have to do the hard stuff. I have to tell you the stuff that you don't want to hear that nobody else is going to tell you. And then I have to push you out of your comfort zone to face the things that you don't want to face. And then I'm going to pick you up and dust you off when you fall down and you do something wrong. And I'm going to be the one that's next to you when it's time for you to leave. And that's a hard seat to be in. But guess what? I cherish it yeah. because I put people at the center. And when you do that, everybody knows I'm here for good, authentic reasons. And I'm here to be good to you. And I'll take you out to dinner the next day if you want to. But you're going to uphold the values of my organization or else you're not going to be here. How do you know if you're succeeding? Do you look at data? Do you look at a happiness survey? Do you look at retention data? Like, how do you know if, you know, I'm doing a good job? A little bit of all at its most basic level, at its most basic level, I will tell you that I have a simple equation. I write a brand statement that says, I want to be known for what so that I can achieve what, right? Very simple, whether it's my personal brand statement or our organizational brand statement. And then I just keep a running list of signs of success and signs of slippage. And you know, instinctively, when certain things are happening in the organization that are happening around you, those are signs of slippage. Whatever it is that my outcomes that I want to achieve, I'm not achieving them. And I can tell, like when people call and they say, hey, Eric, I've decided I'm going to do this. I need your help in getting it through signs of slippage. When people call and say, Eric, I'm thinking about doing something and I don't want to do it without your input. Signs of success. Very, very simple. Right. And then start working your way from there. Signs of slippage and signs of success. So that's at the most rudimentary basic level. Other than that, yeah, you look at data. So what's our hit rate for people who are coming in? How long do they stay? Who are our best performers and what's the retention of our best performers? Because retention in and of itself is not exclusively a good thing. We know that. Quite frankly, the engagement of my leaders. I don't necessarily need 
15 reports and a bunch of numbers to tell me whether or not my leaders are engaged in the things that I'm trying to get done. And I don't need a whole bunch of, you know, coefficients from this and that to tell me whether or not, you know, standard deviations to tell me whether or not these leaders are engaged in the work that I'm trying to get done. I know. And I know if they're engaging with my team and I know if people are coming to us and I can take the trust factor. If our HR function is seen as a trusted place that people can go to get advice and counsel and coaching and guidance, we're doing a good job. And if not, we're not. Great. I have one last question. What do you miss most about the East Coast? (laughs) That sounds like you really didn't have to move West yet. Uh, What do I miss about the East Coast? Wow. My mother's in Florida. So I miss her. Most of my family is still on the East Coast. So I miss them. When New York opens back up and I can go to restaurants and I can go to plays and I can do all that stuff, I'll miss that. (laughs) But to be honest, given that none of that stuff is available to us right now, I was pretty happy to get on a plane and move to the West Coast. And it's 30 degrees here. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't want to show you what I'm looking at right now. I don't want to see what you're looking at right now. It's pretty, it's pretty it's sunny outside. It's probably a palm tree and water. It is pre- it's pretty nice out. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. This is a great conversation. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. It was so nice to get to talk to you. And uh, and I'm really proud of TopTal. I, as I said at the beginning, I, I think that it's a tremendous organization. It makes opportunities for people to be able to get their dreams done and providing services to those that maybe don't have the infrastructure to provide it themselves, but but still help people realize their dreams. And, I, and, I, and I'm proud of the work that you guys do for that. And it's helped me and my family personally. And I just want to say thank you to everybody at TopTel for all that you guys have done for us and that you continue to do for other people as well. Thank you. And if you ever need any assistance on remote work, I'm here to help. Oh, I'm coming your way. No, no <laughs> question. I'm coming your way. Thank you for listening to The Talent Economy. I'm your host, Meredith Bodkiss. You can find much more information about the talent economy on staffing.com and toptal.com slash insights, hubs for bold, comprehensive content featuring business thought leaders and authoritative research focused on the future of work.